Chapter Twenty One A of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty One A Lincoln and Slavery, Plan for Gradual Emancipation, Anti Slavery Legislation in eighteen sixty two, Pressure brought to bear on the Executive, The Delegation of Quakers, A Visit from Chicago Clergymen. Interview between Lincoln and Channing. The emancipation of slaves in America, the crowning act of Lincoln's eventful career, and the one with which his fame is most indissolubly linked, is a subject of supreme interest in a study of his life and character. For this great act, all his previous life and training had been but a preparation. From the first awakening of his convictions of the moral wrong of human slavery, through all his public and private utterances may be traced one logical and consistent development of the principles which at last found sublime expression in the proclamation of emancipation. In this, as always, he was true to his own inner promptings. He would not be hurried or worried or badgered into premature and impracticable measures. He bided his time, and when that time came the deed was done, unalterably and irrevocably approved by the logic of events, and by the enlightened conscience of the world. The final Emancipation Proclamation was issued on the first day of January, 1863. The various official measures that preceded it may be briefly sketched, together with closely related incidents. As early as the autumn of 1861, the problem of the relation of the war to slavery was brought forcibly to the President's attention by the action of General J. C. Fremont, the Union commander in Missouri, who issued an order declaring the slaves of rebels in his department free. The order was premature and unauthorized, and the President promptly annulled it. General Fremont was thus, in a sense, the pioneer in military emancipation, and he loved to see the policy proposed by him carried into practical operation by all our armies. Lincoln afterwards said, I have great respect for General Fremont and his abilities, but the fact is that the pioneer in any movement is not generally the best man to carry that movement to a successful issue. It was so in old times. Moses began the emancipation of the Jews, but didn't take Israel to the promised land after all. He had to make way for Joshua to complete the work. It looks as if the first reformer of a thing has to meet such a hard opposition, and get so battered and bespattered, that afterward, when people find they have to accept his reform, they will accept it more easily from another man. Lincoln at first favored a policy of gradual emancipation. In a special message to Congress on the 6th of March, 1862, he proposed such a plan for the abolition of slavery. In my judgment, he remarked, gradual and not sudden emancipation is better for all. He suggested to Congress the adoption of a joint resolution declaring that the United States ought to cooperate with any state which may adopt a gradual abolition of slavery, giving to such state pecuniary aid to compensate for the inconvenience, public and private, produced by such change of system. In conclusion, he urged, in full view of my great responsibility to my God and my country, I earnestly beg the attention of Congress and the people to this subject. On the 16th of April of this year, 
Congress passed a bill abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia, a measure for which Lincoln had himself introduced a bill while a member of Congress. In confirming the act as President, he remarked privately, Little did I dream in 1849, when as a member of Congress I proposed to abolish slavery at this capital, and could scarcely get a hearing for the proposition, that it would be so soon accomplished. Emancipation measures moved rapidly in 1862. On June 19th, Congress enacted a measure prohibiting slavery forever in all present and future territories of the United States. July 17th a law was passed authorizing the employment of Negroes as soldiers, and conferring freedom on all who should render military service, and on the families of all such as belonged to disloyal owners. Two days later, in a conference appointed by him at the Executive Mansion, the President submitted to the members of Congress from the border states a written appeal, in which he said, Believing that you in the border states hold more power for good than any other equal number of members, I feel it a duty which I cannot justifiably waive, to make this appeal to you. I intend no reproach or complaint when I assure you that, in my opinion, if you all had voted for the resolution in the gradual emancipation message of last March, the war would now be substantially ended. And the plan therein proposed is yet one of the most potent and swift means of ending it. Let the states which are in rebellion see definitely and certainly that in no event will the states you represent ever join their proposed confederacy, and they cannot much longer maintain the contest. If the war continues long, as it must if the object be not sooner attained, the institution in your states will be extinguished by mere friction and abrasion, by the mere incidents of the war. It will be gone, and you will have nothing valuable in lieu of it. Much of its value is gone already. How much better for you and your people to take the step which at once shortens the war and secures substantial compensation for that which is sure to be wholly lost in any other event? How much better to thus save the money which else we sink forever in the war? How much better to do it while we can, lest the war ere long render us pecuniarily unable to do it? How much better for you as seller, and the nation as buyer, to sell out and buy out that without which the war could never have been, than to sink both the thing to be sold and the price of it in cutting one another's throats? I do not speak of emancipation at once, but of a decision to emancipate gradually. Upon these considerations I have again begged your attention to the message of March last. Before leaving the capital, consider and discuss it among yourselves. You are patriots and statesmen, and as such I pray you consider this proposition, and at the least commend it to the consideration of your states and people. As you would perpetuate popular government for the best people in the world, I beseech you that you do in no wise omit this. Our common country is in great peril, demanding the loftiest views and boldest action to bring a speedy relief. Once relieved, its form of government is saved to the world, its beloved history and cherished memories are vindicated, and its happy future fully assured and rendered inconceivably grand. To you, 
more than any others, the privileges given to assure that happiness and swell that grandeur, and to link your own names therewith forever. In an interview with Mr. Lovejoy and Mr. Arnold of Illinois, the day following this conference, Lincoln exclaimed, Oh, how I wish the border states would accept my proposition! Then you, Lovejoy, and you, Arnold, and all of us would not have lived in vain. The labor of your life, Lovejoy, would be crowned with success. You would live to see the end of slavery. The first occasion on which the President definitely discussed emancipation plans with members of his cabinet, according to Secretary Wells, was on the 13th of July, 1862. On that day, says Mr. Wells, President Lincoln invited me to accompany him in his carriage to the funeral of an infant child of Mr. Stanton. Secretary Seward and Mrs. Frederick Seward were also in the carriage. Mr. Stanton occupied at that time for a summer residence the house of a naval officer some two or three miles west or northwest of Georgetown. It was on this occasion, and on this ride, that he first mentioned to Mr. Seward and myself the subject of emancipating the slaves by proclamation, in case the rebels did not cease to persist in their war on the government and the Union, of which he saw no evidence. He dwelt earnestly on the gravity, importance, and delicacy of the movement, said he had given it much thought, and had about come to the conclusion that it was a military necessity absolutely essential for the salvation of the Union that we must free the slaves, or be ourselves subdued, etc. This was, the President said, the first occasion, when he had mentioned the subject to any one, and wished us to frankly state how the proposition struck us. Mr. Seward said the subject involved consequences so vast and momentous, that he should wish to bestow on it mature reflection, before giving a decisive answer. But his present opinion inclined to the measure as justifiable, and perhaps he might say expedient and necessary. These were also my views. Two or three times on that ride the subject, which was of course an absorbing one for each and all, was adverted to, and before separating the President desired us to give the question special and deliberate attention, for he was earnest in the conviction that something must be done. It was a new departure for the President. For until this time, in all our previous interviews, whenever the question of emancipation or the mitigation of slavery had been in any way alluded to, he had been prompt and emphatic in denouncing any interference by the general government with the subject. This was, I think, the sentiment of every member of the Cabinet, all of whom, including the President, considered it a local, domestic question, appertaining to the States respectively who had never parted with their authority over it. But the reverses before Richmond, and the formidable power and dimensions of the insurrection, which extended through all the slave states, and had combined most of them in a confederacy to destroy the Union, impelled the administration to adopt extraordinary measures to preserve the national existence. The slaves, if not armed and disciplined, were in the service of those who were not only as field laborers and producers, but thousands of them were in attendance upon the armies in the field, employed as waiters and teamsters, and the fortifications and entrenchments were constructed by them. It has been shown again and again, by the words of Lincoln and by the testimony of his friends, that he heartily detested the practice of slavery, and would joyfully have set every bondman free. 
before his nomination for the presidency, indeed from the very beginning of his public life, he had repeatedly put himself on record as opposed to slavery, but perhaps nowhere more tersely and unequivocally than in these words. There is no reason in the world why the negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence—the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to them as the white man. But his respect for the laws of the land deterred him from measures that might seem of doubtful constitutionality, and he waited patiently until the right hour had struck before he issued the edict of emancipation so eagerly demanded by a large class of earnest and loyal people at the North. Many of these people, misunderstanding his views and intentions, were very impatient, and their criticisms and expostulations were a constant burden to the sorely tried executive. In June of this year, 1862, the President was waited on by a deputation of Quakers or Friends, fifteen or twenty in number, who had been charged by the yearly meeting of their association to present a minute to the President on the subject of slavery and the duty of immediate emancipation. The visit of these excellent people was not altogether timely. Bad news had been received from McClellan's army on the peninsula, and Lincoln was harassed with cares and anxieties. But he gave the deputation a cordial though brief greeting, as he announced that he was ready to hear from the friends. In the reading of the minute, it appeared that the document took occasion to remind the President that years before he had said, I believe that this government cannot permanently endure half-slave and half-free, and from this was implied a suggestion of his failure to perform his duty as he had then seen it. Lincoln was decidedly displeased with this criticism, and after the document had been read to the close, he received it from the speaker, then drawing himself up, he said with unusual severity of manner, it is true that on the 17th of June, 1858, I said, I believe that this government cannot permanently endure half-slave and half-free. But I said it in connection with other things from which it should not have been separated, in an address discussing moral obligations. For this is a case in which the repetition of half a truth, in connection with the remarks just read, produces the effect of a whole falsehood. What I did say was, if we could first know where we are, and whither we are tending, we could better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, this agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe that this government cannot permanently endure half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect that it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it, and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, 
north as well as south. Take this statement as a whole, and it does not furnish a text for the homily to which this audience has listened. As Lincoln concluded, he was turning away when another member of the delegation, a woman, requested permission to detain him with a few words. Somewhat impatiently, he said, I will hear the friend. Her remarks were a plea for the emancipation of the slaves, urging that he was the appointed minister of the Lord to do the work, and enforcing her argument by many scriptural citations. At the close he asked, "'Has the friend finished?' And receiving an affirmative answer, he said, "'I have neither time nor disposition to enter into discussion with the friend, and end this occasion by suggesting for her consideration the question whether, if it be true that the Lord has appointed me to do the work she has indicated, it is not probable that he would have communicated knowledge of the fact to me as well as to her?" Something like the same views were expressed by Lincoln on another occasion, when, in response to a memorial presented by a delegation representing most of the religious organizations of Chicago, he said respectfully and pointedly, I am approached with the most opposite opinions and advice, and by religious men who are certain they represent the divine will. I hope it will not be irreverent in me to say that, if it be probable, that God would reveal His will to others on a point so closely connected with my duty, it might be supposed He would reveal it directly to me. If I can learn His will, I will do it. These, however, are not the days of miracles and I suppose I am not to expect a direct revelation. I must study the plain physical facts of the case, and learn what appears to be wise and right. Do not misunderstand me because I have mentioned these objections. They indicate the difficulties which have thus far prevented my action in some such way as you desire. I have not decided against a proclamation of emancipation, but hold the matter in advisement. The subject is in my mind by day and by night. Whatever shall appear to be God's will, I will do." About this period the President had a very interesting conversation with Rev. William Henry Channing, in which the question of emancipation was frankly discussed. Mr. M. D. Conway, who was present at the interview, says, Mr. Channing, having begun by expressing his belief that the opportunity of the nation to rid itself of slavery had arrived, Mr. Lincoln asked how he thought they might avail themselves of it. Channing suggested emancipation, with compensation for the slaves. The President said he had for years been in favor of that plan. When the President turned to me, I asked whether we might not look to him as the coming deliverer of the nation from its one great evil. What would not that man achieve for mankind who should free America from slavery. He said, Perhaps we may be better able to do something in that direction after a while than we are now. I said, Mr. President, do you believe the masses of the American people would hail you as their deliverer if, at the end of this war, the Union should be surviving and slavery still in it? Yes, if they were to see that slavery was on the downhill. I ventured to say, our fathers compromised with slavery because they thought it on the downhill. Hence war today. The President said, 
I think the country grows in this direction daily, and I am not without hope that something of the desire of you and your friends may be accomplished. When the hour comes for dealing with slavery, I trust I shall be willing to do my duty, though it costs my life. And gentlemen, lives will be lost." These last words were said with a smile, yet with a sad and weary tone. During the conversation Mr. Lincoln recurred several times to Channing's suggestion of pecuniary compensation for emancipated slaves, and professed profound sympathy with the Southerners, who by no fault of their own had become socially and commercially bound up with their peculiar institution. Being a Virginian myself, with many dear relatives and beloved companions of my youth in the Confederate ranks, I responded warmly to his kindly sentiments toward the South, albeit feeling more angry than he seemed to be against the institution preying upon the land like a ghoul. I forget whether it was on this occasion, or on a subsequent one, when I was present that he said, in parting, "'We shall need all the anti-slavery feeling in the country, and more. You can go home and try to bring the people to your views, and you may say anything you like about me, if that will help. Don't spare me.' This was said with some laughter, but still in earnest. End of chapter 21a Recording by Bill Borst